I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles and spend the rest of our time together in the Word of God. For those of you who are visiting, we just want you to understand that when we open up God's Word, we really believe this is God's inerrant Word, His Word for us. It is the Word that testifies of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom He sent to die for sinners like us, that we would be saved and redeemed, forgiven of our sins with an incredible hope and purpose in this life. So when we open God's word, we worship. Just like when we sing, we are making declarations. Everything we sing is not primarily motivated by emotional responses. It's primarily motivated by truth that we declare together. And so it is when we sing, and so it is when we hear God's word preached. When you meet throughout the week with your community group, where you dive deeper into these texts that we preach here from the pulpit on Sunday mornings. So if you're not enjoying the life among the believers in a community group, you're missing out. Every week, the purpose of the community group is to gather together around God's word, to dive deeper into the text that was preached that Sunday. For we know that now in this moment, it's more of a monologue, but we want to be in a dialogue as well to know how to best apply it to our lives. But something special happens when the church is gathered. There's something special that happens when we are together in the same space, in the presence of our Lord and Savior, in the Spirit of God who is in us and present with us, instructing us and opening our minds and hearts to see the beauty of our Savior. And there's nothing like a gathered church. Zoom doesn't do it. Facebook Live doesn't do it. YouTube doesn't do it. Being present together is special. So now we get the privilege of opening up God's word and reading it and meditate on it as it's declared. So I want to invite you to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We've been working through the book of 1 Samuel for several months, chapter by chapter. What is God's message for us through this book? And today we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 52. As Pastor Jesse last week had preached, verses 1 through 23. I'm going to read out loud. You can follow along your copy of God's Word as always. And again, if you do not own a Bible, at the welcome corner, we'll have Bibles there ready to give to you. We would love to just gift you one of those books. So 1 Samuel 14, starting on verse 24, this is the Word of the Lord. It's a long section worth our read. It says this, and the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all of the people that came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge, the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, 
My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I I tasted a little of of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day in Mishmash and Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. The people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, have you dealt treacherously? Row a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox and his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord, and it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired. Inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hands of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is on your people, Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken But the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey from the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me. And more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua, And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaiz. 
And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is God's word for us today. Let us go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Oh, Father in heaven, as your word has been read, as we prepared our hearts to receive it, Lord, I pray that with great conviction and eye-opening work of grace might occur in our hearts, that sinners in this room, those who have not been redeemed or have not understood their need of a Savior, Lord, that this day would be the day that their eyes would be brightened and opened to see spiritually the truth of their sin and the glorious truth of Christ the Savior. And for those who are yours, the, the church gathered, but I pray that we would be reminded of the wretchedness of sin, of this flesh that is always near and always on the attack and the enemy of our souls who is relentless and how we could then in the freedom that we have in Christ look to him and rejoice in the glory of our salvation and in our Savior who has given us freedom and equipped us by His Spirit to live the Christian life. So thank you for your word now, and may it do what only it can do in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. History has proven that as quickly as an individual, a people, or a nation can rise on the scene and exhibit great authority, power, or popularity, or fame, or influence, as fast as that could happen, so fast is also the fall of men. Every great empire has had its rise, but it's also had its fall. History has shown this to be true, and we don't have to go very far, just in our very present day. The career of Bill Cosby, one who entertained so many for so long. How fast was his crash when over 60 women brought accusations of rape and sexual misconduct against him? Or O.J. Simpson, who was a Hall of Fame running back, who upon that famous trial of the murder of his wife and her lover, how still till this day is debated whether he is guilty or not, how, how great was his fall. Or Harvey Weinstein, another one who, at the top of his career and how much he had over the empire of entertainment, how the sexual accusations of over 80 women contributed to his debacle and fall. Or Lance Armstrong, the greatest cyclist who has ever lived, but because of performance-enhancing drugs, how he was stripped of so much. Or Richard Nixon and Watergate, or at, you know, even at, um, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, how, what a, a juggernaut of a, a superpower in the moment, and yet how quickly the Allied forces would come in a matter of few years, destroy 
the Nazis. And perhaps we have in our story, in our text here, one of the quickest rises to fame and authority and power and, and the quickest of falls is this King Saul of Israel. This chapter ends with basically a recap of his kingship. By the time we reach the end of this chapter and then chapter 15 as well, we know that he's, a illeg he's an illegitimate king. His, his, his kingship is over after the end of this chapter. In chapter 9, Saul appears on the scene as this humble man who is hiding behind baggage. He is hiding because he's afraid to be anointed as the king officially and publicly before Israel. In the last chapter, we see his pride and his disregard for the commands of God, how he's usurping the role of the priest, Samuel. And now in this chapter, how he's blaming others for his sin. He's blaming the people um, for his failures. So I want us to see in this text that we have just read, I want us to see the foolishness, the wickedness, the sinful ways of King Saul and how sin produces horrific consequences. But I want us, as we see the life of Saul and this interaction that he has with the people and with Jonathan, his son, I want us to see the darkness of this text so that we could be pointed to the reality that we ultimately need, yes, a king, but not this king, Saul, or not any other earthly king. Who we need is King Jesus, the one who came to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, to be risen from the dead, to conquer death and hell, to have victory over the enemies of our souls, and who today is at the right hand of the Father in glory, and who's offered to us sinners freely salvation by faith alone, not by works, so that we would have an eternity with him to live under his kingdom. We will be reminded of the righteous, gracious, merciful ways of the rightful king and savior of our souls, the Lord Jesus. What a contrast. So we get to see King Saul. And I want us to see in the first verses, 24 through 30, I want us to see to just look at this, this oath that he made, this foolish oath that he brought upon the people. Well, last week, Pastor Jesse was preaching and it was this, this thing between Saul and Jonathan. How Saul is afraid, he has his army, he doesn't know what to do, he's sort of strategizing in his own reasoning how to fight the Philistines, and yet Jonathan and his armor bearer on their own, two of them, Jonathan, believing that God is delivering these people, he attacks a group of Philistines and kills 20 men, and that provokes for the Philistines to be somewhat on the run, and there's a, a battle that's happening all day, and the Israelites have gained some steam, and they're chasing the Philistines, and all this is happening in the same day. This minor victory from Jonathan triggered this greater pursuing of the Philistines. And when we get to verse 24 of our text, we find that they are exhausted. The men of Israel have been hard-pressed that day. They are tired. They've been hard-pressed. The sun has been scorching them. It's been a difficult day in the battlefield. They are overwhelmed and they are extremely weak and 
hungry. They haven't eaten a thing all day. And even under those conditions, Saul has this idea. He swears this oath. He makes everyone promise after a day like this where there is nothing to eat, they have empty stomachs. He says this. He gives this oath to the people. Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. No one could eat. No one put anything in their mouth. This isn't over. Well, if you would think of a captain of an army or general or something, you would think that there might be reasons why you shouldn't eat at the moment. Perhaps it's because if we're eating, we're distracted. We might be attacked. Or maybe you found out that the food isn't exactly healthy, it's somewhat spoiled. Let's not eat because it might upset our stomachs. That'd be very difficult to fight. I guess there could be many reasons why you would say, it's not the time to eat. It's time to be focused. But we're talking about the people of Israel, where every battle is supposed to be, the Lord has given us the victory, let's go. There's a confidence that we should have, that God's people should have in the text that God has proven himself in history to be the savior of his people, that he's the king that they need. So therefore, there is a way in which we can live peacefully, that God is advancing. But what we see in Saul here, we find that the motivation that he gives for this oath is not God has given us our enemies. God has brought victory for us. No, the motivation in Saul's heart is completely about him. It's completely self-centered. It's completely about his safety and his name. Because he says when he gives the oath that cursed be the man who eats until it's evening, until the Lord is magnified. No, no, no. Until I am avenged on my enemy. Oh, you're not eating because I need to protect my name, because I need to, I don't know if Jonathan is having way too much, you know, influence here, these battles that he's had, I don't like this, I'm the king, not my son, what a horrible rivalry among them, and there he is, he sort of has this complex, this bad motivation, self-centered motivation to tell his men, no one eats anything because I need to be avenged. I need to avenge on my enemies. Oh, his motivation was his agenda, his safety. He is the center of his world. And how can we also learn how we could do many things with the wrong motivation? Well, you might be here right now and you sat in this church and you have the wrong motivation for being here. Maybe you're here because you were dragged here Okay, so I'd rather be sleeping, but I'm at church. Or maybe it's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to church because I need to hear what that pastor's going to say because, man, I'm just looking for the errors. Well, some approach it that way. Or, or, or let me give my offering. To, let me make sure someone sees me give it. And we could do a lot of things that externally. You could submit to your pastors and leaders or your bosses you can submit externally, but be wrongly motivated in your heart. Or even pastors can preach and pastor and lead with wrong motivations, with desires for control and power and authority. Oh, most definitely Saul has the wrong motivation. His son has killed 20 men with his armor bearer. 
and he has caused an escalation in battle. This is the reality of Israel. The Philistines are confused. They're killing one another. Israel is chasing them down, and, and, and he is just obsessed. I need to, this is my moment to protect my name. And they're chasing them down into some forest. And when they enter that forest, apparently they're chasing them down into an area where people don't normally hang out. And they get there and they see honey on the ground. And they look up and there's honey dripping from the trees. Apparently there's an abundance of honey in this forest. Now, imagine the scene. The oath has been made. There's nothing no one put anything in your mouth. There is no food to be eaten until this, until I am avenged on my enemies. And they enter into this forest, and these hungry men, war torn, tired, ready to be replenished, enter this forest, see the honey, and are unable to taste it. I'm sure they were tempted to. I'm sure you would have been too. But no one put his hand, verse 26 says, no one put his hand in his mouth with the honey. Why? Because they feared the king. They feared the oath. Oh, Samuel had said that Saul, Samuel the prophet had told Israel, you put an earthly king, he will rule wrongly over you. He will say things and do things that will not be to your benefit. Here's a perfect example. And Jonathan, he comes around. Apparently, Jonathan, who was just in the battlefield with his armor bearer, he's returning to, you know, all the soldiers, the company. And he finally arrives, he catches up with them in the forest, and he didn't hear what his father had said. He joins in, and he's like, ooh, honey. He's like, you know. And the snitch of the classroom is like, bro, what are you doing? I'm going to tell your father. Don't you know that your father said something? He said we couldn't eat anything. What are you doing eating? And he's like, why wouldn't I eat? I just came back from the battlefield. I'm starving. Aren't we all starving? But we know that from verse 27 that Jonathan hadn't heard it, so therefore he ate it. And we need to understand that this honey was, should have been something good for the soldiers. It should have been extremely nutritional for them and satisfying because the text says that when Jonathan had of the honey, his eyes became bright. Perhaps what that means is that he, he had received some energy. He received some calories all of a sudden, he feels alive after the long, grueling day on the battlefield. And perhaps that was supposed to be from the Lord a blessing. Or maybe that was the moment in which it's like manna from heaven in the desert that God would provide a way to replenish them to continue devastating the Philistines, the enemies of God. But that little snitch is like, your dad said we can't eat that stuff. Yeah, I want it, but we can't do it. And then you see the frustration in Jonathan. I think Jonathan maybe even sinned here. However, verse 29, he openly speaks against his father. He doesn't like, you know, sort of tether his tongue and his mind and say, okay, man, I gotta have a talk with dad because this is not cool. This is not helping. No, but he freely speaks 
And he says in verse 29, and then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with the oath saying, curse be the man who eats the food this day. And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of his honey. How much better if the people had freely today eaten of the spoil of the enemies. For now the defeat of the Philistines had only been small, not very great. We could have just, what is my dad doing? Why would he make such an oath? My dad, my father has troubled the land. This is like the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua. They, they go into Jericho, they conquer them. The instructions from the Lord are, take no spoil, everything is left behind, everything is offered as a sacrifice. And Achan takes some of the spoil, hides it in his tent, and the people said, oh, oh, look what has come upon the land. Look what Achan has brought upon the land. And here in similar ways, Jonathan is saying, look what my dad has done. Oh, it's so interesting to see his response. This should have been different. We should be eating. We should have our energy replenished. How much better would it have been? We would have routed the Philistines right now and the Lord would have been glorified. He would have taken the glory. So we, we see in Jonathan a provocative posture. He's speaking out loud against his father and we could sense the frustration in him. These men should have been strong and motivated and fed, but instead they're weak and scared because of the fears and weaknesses and sinful habits of their leader. And what we find in this text that we read from verse 31 and on, it seems like it only gets darker and darker, deeper and deeper, gets worse and worse. Because according to verse 31, we read in verse 31 that they struck down the Philistines that day from Mishmash to Ejelon. They continued fighting in that state. And they were exhausted. Eventually they reached another place where it says, and the people were very faint. But Saul had made his oath. He had commanded the people, do not eat the honey. Don't put anything in your stomach. No one eats until we are done. And imagine the scenario. It's nighttime. It's dark. It's getting dark possibly. And they're hungry. And they had some victories in the battlefield. What did they do? In their desperation, they're like, I'm done. Forget the oath. You see all these animals that were left behind by the Philistines? Let's take these animals. Let's cut them right here and now. And let's eat because we got to eat right now. You get the picture of lions who have just attacked some wildebeest and they just grabbed onto it, jumped on his back and grabbed it by the juggler and, and then here come all the other lions in desperation, they're ripping the animal apart, their faces are full of bl bloody. You get the scene, you've seen videos like that. That is the picture that we see of these people, they're so hungry and they need something in their bodies that what they do is they're just on the ground. These are Jews who are very kosher with the things. There are laws against not eating with the blood, Leviticus 17 and other places. Do the research on your own. In their desperation, they cut open these animals and they eat the animals raw. They're eating the meat without even draining the blood. 
How desperate do a bunch of Jews have to be in order to reach this point? They don't do these things, but yet they are. They are. But the question is, why are they doing it? Well, they're doing it because they were provoked by the self-righteous, sinful decision of their king. Because of Saul, Saul provokes them. Because of his oath that is extra biblical, Nowhere did the Lord tell him to tell them not to eat from that honey. The lack of wisdom is astounding. His lack of leadership and his sinful ways provokes the people to then sin against God in the way that they eat. And in verse 33, word comes to Saul. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And look at his response. He says, you have dealt treacherously. Row a great stone to me here. Oh, people, you are sinning against God, Saul says. What are you doing? Little does he know. Nowhere in the radar for Saul is his sin provoked this. He's blinded to it. His hypocrisy is outstanding. It's outstanding astounding his effort to avenge himself to preserve his name to secure his place has brought the worst out of these men there's something for us to learn here we must be careful not to live our lives throwing our weight around with extra biblical things things that god has not said that might be a preference for us out of a sense of sin and security of wanting to protect ourselves and make ourselves have peace and we, we could do all kinds of stuff and implement all kinds of rules around the people who we love and who we do life with in such a way that provokes them to frustration that exasperates and even can lead them to sin we can, in the name of the Lord, create rebellious people. I'll give you some examples. When I grew up in church, a very narrow, legalistic mindset. It's like, don't let me catch you dancing ever. Don't let me catch you with an alcoholic drink in your hand. Oh, oh modesty is... This, or you can't watch that TV show. And don't get me wrong, every believer has to consider what is, what is lawful for us to do, what is within the bounds of our conscience, what's not leading us towards a place of sin. But I grew up in a way where rules were added far above and beyond what the Bible even says. And you know what that produced in a lot of the young people in my generation? Frustration. Leave the church. Because the lifestyle that I'm expected to live becomes unattainable. Because it's far beyond what even God expects. These are, these are how sects are made. <laughs> this is how other religious, false religions are very cultish. 
the Amish with all the regulations and all the ways of life. There's TV shows about people fleeing from that oppression. And here's Saul. He speaks into, out of his own fears, he makes this oath. He exasperates his people to the point of causing them to sin. There's a church in town, a large church, where the pastor, everyone calls him Papi. You know why they call him Papi? Because whatever Papi says, that's what everybody has to do. Because whatever Papi says, it doesn't matter if it's in the scriptures or not. Because Papi is also Apostle Papi. And Apostle Papi says, here's what Peter said, here's what Paul said, here's what John said. Now here's what Apostle Papi says. And everybody blindly just follows Papi. And Papi leads you into incredibly dark places in the name of Jesus. And to places that are theological wrecking balls that then shipwreck people's faith. And they don't even see it. And what a warning for us all. For husbands and how you lead your, your wives and how you live with your spouse, how, how the things that you demand out of just rooted in your fears and your insecurities, how, how you're not framing the things to formulate the functioning of your home, not through the scriptures, but through everything else that you see as just a place of safety for you in sinful ways. Be careful, because you can hurt your spouse, or parents, you could damage your own children or pastors you could abuse the flock of God that is among you that God has placed under you for you to care for them his sheep not yours oh, as pastors the work that we have to when we open up the scriptures to make sure that the things that we say and the things that we teach and proclaim are the words of God and not our own opinions my opinions don't matter I could give you my opinions we can have the conversation over coffee. These are my opinions as I'm wrestling with the truth of God. But this is what God says. And that every preacher and pastor must do from the pulpit to the counseling session to the interaction, not just pastors, but for every Christian. And when we mess up, because we will, because we're not the Lord, Jesus Christ was still in this flesh. What is a leader to do? What is it that, sh that Saul should have done upon realizing how he exasperates the, all of the army and they're eating all this animal, you know, the blood, this horrific scene. He should have woken up and said, what have I done? What have I asked of these people? Man, I messed up. Leaders should be able to say from the home, from the church, at work, man, hey, it's on me. I messed this up. I will then apologize and go about this a different way. He should have seen that, but he didn't. He didn't repent of it. He didn't apologize for it. No, he looked at them and said, you evil guys, you sinner. So look at what he does. He says, bring me a large stone. He calls out his people. He sends them out. Go tell all the people, hey, I'm going to resolve this because there's a right way of doing this in Israel. 
which is really he's doing again what Samuel had already told him. What do you, when Samuel says to him, what are you doing? It is not your job to offer the offerings and to spill the blood of animals, but yet, yet it's the first altar that he builds. He does it again. Oh, the people have sinned against God. Well, I'm gonna solve this. Bring me a stone. Tell everybody to bring in all their animals. I'm gonna pour the animals. I'm going to bleed them out over the stone. And as I bleed them out and prepare them, you know what? Go and have your meat. He's gonna consecrate the moment himself. What a mistake. What is he thinking? At the very least, if his intentions were, okay, I've sinned against the Lord. I've, I've actually provoked others to sin. If, if he would have, you know, approaches with some humility, but there's no evidence of that. There is no evidence that he shows repentance towards God or repentance towards the people. He doesn't even seem to be sad over his sin and much less even have a zeal to honor the Lord. He just doesn't like what he's seeing. He's a problem solver and he's ready to solve the problem. Oh yeah, the people sinned and they got to take ownership for their sinning. But Saul is, is primarily the problem here in how he's been leading God's people and his sinful, treacherous ways has led people down a path where they have sinned against the Lord and he thinks he's just gonna fix it without repentance and turning to the Lord. So verse 36, we find that after this, after he builds the altar, he solves everybody's problem. Everybody just, you know, washed up, cleaned up, ready to go. He's like, well, the night's still young. Then Saul said, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. In other words, I'm avenging my people today. I'm going to avenge myself. I need to be justified here. And interesting how the people respond and they said, do whatever seems good to you. Notice how different when Jonathan went to battle with just his armor bearer. Turn to verse 7 for just a second again. Verse 7, back up. Here's how his armor bearer responded to Jonathan. When Jonathan said, let's go attack these Philistines. Just him and his armor bearer, not with an army. He, he didn't say, Jonathan, you're crazy. I'll never do that. That's a suicide mission. He said, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. What a difference. After Saul's horrific leadership and sinful ways, how he's ex exasperating God's people, they just tell him, hey, you know what? Do whatever's good to you. And then in the midst of all that, let's go, we're packing our bags. It seems like it's almost comical. But the priest said, remember the illegitimate priests. The, the priest is like, um, um, wait a minute, hey, 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 Sh shouldn't we ask God? Shouldn't we turn to the Lord right now? You know, Saul is a man who is not a man of conviction. He's just a man of opportunities. And it's good for him right now. He could go after the Philistines. And he's not even thinking about the Lord. Thinking about, he just made this altar. But he's not thinking about the Lord. And the priest has to intervene and say, hey, wait, wait a minute. This is like you and your children. You're at home. You've been out all day. You're starving. You order some pizza. 
it arrives, and your typical routine is you set the table, you take out the ice and the cups and the drinks and the napkins, and, and, that's the, and then you normally gather together, you wait for one another, and you pray, then you eat. No, that's not what happened that day. You got home, the pizza got there, three of you sat down, you have half a piece of st- stuffed in your face already, and some people are doing their thing, and somebody says, hey, are we going to pray? And like, sure, um, yeah, why don't you pray? You know, like, like, I'm not interested in praying, I'm interested in eating. Bro, just go through the motions, go, go, go. We've all been there, and we've all, and we've all been on, 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 on either side of that. <laughs> but here, he's like, Saul's like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, we have to inquire from the Lord. Okay, let's do it, let's do it. And he does. Lord, um, will you deliver the Philistines into our hands? Will you rescue Israel? And all they get is silence. God's not talking this to Saul. He's not speaking to Saul. Think about what that means. The king of Israel, the earthly representative of God's people, cannot hear instructions from the Lord. Now the question is, is God distracted? Is God uninterested? No, it's his people. He's fully, covenantally committed to the rescue and the salvation of his people. Why is there no response? And the answer is because of unrepented sin. Because of the sin of Saul. He's lost his legitimacy. He started off as the one who would be anointed to lead his people, but he's lost his legitimacy because of his sin. Samuel, the prophet, has already departed from him. And the kingdom has already been taken away from him in its authority, although he continues to be for several years king. God is not on his side. He doesn't have the Lord's favor. And for no other reason than unrepentant, rebellious sin, which is what's always caused the separation between God and man. You're here today and you have not repented of your sinful, wicked, treacherous ways. You're here today and you consider your sin, you dismiss it, you minimize it, you only say, I'm not as bad as the guy next to me. Instead of saying, the holy God of the universe, as Joel had said earlier, one sin, he realized, has separated him from the glory of God together. That one little, that we consider white lie, deserves death because the wages of sin is death. And before a holy God, there could be no sin. It is the very sinful nature that we received from the first Adam, that we inherited the sinful nature from our parents in the garden, that very sin has condemned us and therefore we have no access to God. Heaven is shut out for us. All we have is damnation and the wrath and the justice of God. And the only thing that could open up heaven and bring word from the Lord that will penetrate our hearts and bless us and save us and direct us 
is if that sin is dealt with. Without the sin being dealt with, there is no son or daughter of God, just enemies of God. And the only way to deal with that sin is that that sin needs to be punished. That sin needs to be dealt with. And we know on this side of the cross that it was dealt with on Calvary. When God pours his wrath not upon us, but upon his son. And if we just believe in him by faith, we are freed from that guilt because it was paid for by the only one who could actually pay it. Saul doesn't hear from God. Heaven is shut out to him. But instead of Saul in that moment repenting, look at verse 37. Verse 37 tells us, and Saul, he inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will they go be in the hands of, of Israel? He didn't answer him that day, and Saul said, verse 38, come here all you leaders of the people and know and see how this sin has arisen today. He, he affirms, the problem here is there's sin among us. I haven't heard from God. I don't have instructions, but it's, it's their sin. Gather all the people. Gather everybody. All, all, all the soldiers, gather my son. Maybe he's heard about Jonathan, what he said a few verses before. He's a little jealous of his son. Is he like trying to you know, shadow him? Or, or like he has way too much influence among the people. He wants to gather everybody. To resolve this situation, again, to be priestly, he makes another oath. He makes another oath. He basically says, we're going to find out where this sin is rooted right now. I know it's not me. It might be one of you people. And he says, even if it's my son, if it's my son, he will, he shall, he will surely die. Even if it's my son. I don't know if he meant that. If, if maybe he's just trying to regain his power, he's just speaking in hyperboles, or, or, or maybe he heard about what Jonathan had done. But we're going to figure this out is what he has in his mind, and we're going to figure out where, where, where is the sinner, and when we find the sinner, we're going to execute him. Justice will be served. And verse 39 tells us that no one answered him. No one said a word. Everyone protected Jonathan, those who had heard about it. So he gives instructions. You all stand over here. Jonathan, you stand over here. You stand here. And the, they cast lots. I do some research about the ephod of the priests. And, the, and those two words, the urim and the thirim, are these stones that they would use to cast lots. There's a, a lot we could say there. But this is the way it was done back then. And, and in the first casting, the people were were freed from the responsibility. And Saul's like, okay, okay, let's do it again. Jonathan and I, and, and Jonathan was the one who came out. And Jonathan stands there, and it's amazing what in verse 43, Saul tells Jonathan, he basically says, what have you done? Where have you heard that before? Samuel told him in chapter 13, what have you done, Saul? And here is self-righteous, sinful treacherous, wicked Saul telling his son, what is it that you have done? And Jonathan's response, I can only see it as dripping with sarcasm. 
Because in verse 43, based on what he had said earlier to his friends when he ate the honey. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted some honey. <laughs> it was there. I took some. I tasted it. Um, yeah, I know the process you're doing. Someone's got to die. I guess I got to die. I guess I got to die. Perhaps in frustration. And it's amazing how, how he's lost all authority because we discovered that the people said to Saul, those who were afraid of his oath, those who obeyed and not ate at the time until they were done with it, those who finally said, unlike the armor bearer of Jonathan who said, I, I will be with you to the end, like, do whatever you want to do, man. It reached a point that when he's going to execute his own son, how wicked and evil, over the honey, the people rise and say, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it as the Lord lives. And they get bold. Listen, not a hair on his head will be touched. Not a hair on his head will fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. So the people, they ransomed Jonathan. They rescued, they purchased, they saved Jonathan that day. What beautiful pictures of the salvation of the Lord, how he spares us and rescues us from the evil around. But what defiance, what defiance in that moment where it was clearly evident that this leader, their king, was sinning against the Lord in incredibly obvious ways. And what, what a call upon all of us, whether it be at home, in our marriages, in our parenting, even as sons and daughters, at church, at work, nationally. When we're called to sin against the Lord, we do not obey men. If your pastors, they call you to sin against the Lord, the church better speak up and say, you're wrong. When a boss forces you to do something that's unethical, where it's sin against the Lord, you need to risk losing your job to obey the Lord. Obedience to the Lord is every time the call of the Christian. So you have a horrendous story, but it has an ending where, you know, the people, the Lord uses the people to sort of dampen and, and, and to suppress the evil that, that Saul's about to commit. And it's interesting that when you get to verse 47, how there's a transition. Where it, it, it speaks highly of Saul. 47 and 48 speaks in these generalized terms. I think actually 47 through 52 is basically just wrapping up the kingship of Saul. Yes, this was Saul. The, here were his generations. Here's all that he accomplished. Okay, that's... From here, on, from here on over, anything about Saul is just illegitimate. But he did good things. He fought against his enemies. He fought against all these, and he, he delivered Israel. So, so the reality is that although he was a wicked, sinful man, he did some good things, and that's acknowledged. And then the acknowledgement of his family. But what, what can we learn from this story Quickly, I got five things, and I mean quickly. 
So we're out of time. Five truths for us to take home with us about the story of King Saul and this moment with Jonathan and the men who were there. Number one, let us be more concerned with God's agenda than our own. Let us be more concerned with God's agenda than our own. If you are a Christian, you exist for the glory of God, to build his kingdom, to advance his message of the gospel, not your own. This isn't about your kingdom, it's about his kingdom. It's not even about your safety, it isn't even about your well-being. It's everything that you do in word and deed, you do it all to the glory of God, as unto the Lord. All of it. You do everything in that way, trusting that the Lord has a good plan, even if God's agenda in your eyes is unfavorable to you. Even if that means sacrifice for you, even if that means pain for you, even if that means the hard road for you, you, you know what? Historically, historically, Christians have always taken the hard road. Always. We live very, very comfortable lives as Christians in America so far. Let us be more concerned with God's agenda than our own. Secondly, let us not be a stumbling block to others and cause them to sin. Paul speaks about we, we shouldn't be a stumbling block for others. We, we shouldn't be the ones who are causing people to sin. Ask yourself the question, how do I parent? How do I deal with my spouse? How do I deal with my, with my bosses, my coworkers, employees? Am I that one who professes to be a Christian yet is a jerk around others and push people to anger and to indifference. Let's not be a stumbling block to others. On the contrary, Christians should be of the humblest of people who are, who, are, who, are, who are eager to outdo one another in love and service. Don't be like Saul. And number three, let us see ourselves as the chief of sinners, using the words of Paul in 1 Timothy. Oh, he, he, he lays out who he was, an insolent opponent of the gospel, a hater of God's people. He arrested Christians. He hated, he was public enemy number one to the church. And he expresses that. He says, and I was the worst of them all. And then he acknowledges it in the same text. But I still am that guy in the present. And that the only thing that was good in him was the grace of God that overflowed for him. We should acknowledge as believers the horrors of sin and the grace that we have received. And we should understand that in this flesh are words and how we speak. We should be always, and you've heard me say this a bunch of times, suspicious of ourselves. Why do I say what I do? And what am I about to do? What, what, what is my motivation? May our motivations always be driven by the gospel. Because with the tongue, we murder or we bless. With the tongue, James says, we set a forest on fire. With our words that are driven from our hearts. Whatever is in our hearts, that's what our treasure is, and that's what we defend and worship. We should be suspicious of ourselves and see ourselves as the chief of sinners so that I would be a blessing to others and to point others towards Jesus. Number four, let us be reminded that it is possible to, it is possible to succeed publicly and yet fail privately. This this uh, description, 47 through 48, of Saul 
Oh, he did good things. Hey, you just see 47 and 48. Man, what a good leader. Yeah, if you look behind, behind the curtain, it's devastating error and unfaithfulness. It's like Moses in the desert who, Moses was God's man, and that moment when, when the Lord said, speak to the rock this time, don't hit it, and in frustration with the people who, who were like complaining against God, we'd rather be in Egypt, I'd rather be a slave, he, he doesn't obey the Lord, he hits the rock twice, water flows out, everybody drank, everyone said, Moses, you are the man, you're God's man, look at the miracle happened, and yet because of his sin, Moses never saw the promised land, he never went into the promised land because he disobeyed the Lord that day. Publicly, a hero, God's man. He's like this with the Lord. Privately, failed. And the reason why we'll see Moses in heaven is because of God's sheer grace, ultimately in Christ. But let's be reminded that you can be successful externally. It doesn't matter what people think of you. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is what God thinks of you. Where's your heart? Where's your heart today? And number five, lastly, and we'll be done here. Let us trust and long for the true king. Let us trust and long for the true king. As I said in the beginning, that this, this very explicit picture of this fallen, sinful, treacherous king compel us to say, Oh, look, we're sinners that we need a king, but it can't be that kind of king. And that that would propel us to say, who is the king I need? And that we would discover in the scriptures and the testimony of God's Bible is this. The one true king we need is Jesus. The one who's already reigning at the right hand of the Father in righteousness and justice. And not, and not only that we would trust in him, that he would lead the way for us, forgive us of our sins through his atoning sacrifice and lead us the way home to glory, but that more, than, more so even that we would long for him even today. In the midst of a crooked generation, in the midst of all the struggles in our own hearts, the sin we deal with and the world that's falling apart, that we would long for the return of our king, the one who has promised and guaranteed you will be with me forever. And in that day, there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more death. A world that we don't understand, yet that's what he has promised to those who have believed in him. Not by works, but by faith.